The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Monday, September 30th, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. As with any scandal, we get to know new players. This time, it's Kurt Volker and Yuri Lutsenko. There are even some odd Ukrainians attached to Manafort and Mueller. That investigation, remember them? I have a Konstantin Kalimnik constant contact go-to meeting scheduled at noon tomorrow. But do you know the person who I've been hearing about more than any other person? A man who dominated my consciousness and awareness. You could even say my every waking or listening moment. It's a person whose story I have been asked to, and yes, a person who I even asked you to be invested in. I am, of course, speaking of Dylan Miskowitz. Who? Oh, you've not heard of Dylan Miskowitz? I think maybe then you've not been listening. Cafe El Torres COO Dylan Miskowitz. Hiring's a slow process. Cafe El Torres COD Dylan Miskowitz. Cafe Altura COO Dylan Miskowitz needed to hire a director of coffee for his organic coffee company. But they left us hanging. I did too. I never filled you in on what happened with the Dylan Miskowitz quest. Joseph Conrad will be quite, quite disappointed. So I wanted to know, and I know about you, you wanted to know too. Did the hire work out? You'll be glad to know that in non-podcast form, the company went into further details about Dylan Miskowitz's coffee expert hiring saga. My name's Dylan Miskowitz. I'm the chief operating officer of Cafe Altura. Okay, cool. A name to a face. Now I can report that Dylan Miskowitz looks exactly like what a Dylan Miskowitz would look like. You've got the uh, brown parted on the side hair. That's the Miskowitz part. But you also got those playful hazel eyes. Oh, that's all Dylan. And we get in this TV ad, actually, I don't know if it played on TV. It's definitely on YouTube, though. In this ad, an answer as to what direction they went in. We would not be where we are if we didn't have Brett as our director of coffee. Brett! That is who they hired. They hired Brett. But how has Brett been working out? So from a non-slate email, I reached out to the coffee company. I didn't want to identify myself as someone who... You know, maybe mention Dylan Miskowitz dozens of times on my show. That'd be weird. Don't want to make him uncomfortable. But what I did do is type an email to the coffee company and I said, Subject, how's Brett working out? Here's the full body of my text. He and Dylan seem to have a good working relationship. It's good to see the team gelling. Best Mike Pesca. I got, a, got an email back from Will Shepard, a product specialist with the company who writes, hi, Mike. Brett would likely have a good working relationship with anyone. He really is a pleasure to work with. We enjoy his personality too, so that's a plus. Dylan has complete confidence in Brett's ability to roast, source, plan, document, and work with customers. It's hard to find all those skills in one person. We lucked out. Thank you for the email. Well, that's it. There it is. Brett meets Dylan. Dylan likes Brett. It's all working out. And it's all because of a certain company that if they pay to advertise, I will mention them, but in this space, they haven't paid, so they will go unnamed. Maybe coming up, you'll find out which company it was. But now we could go on to a new story, a new chapter, if you will, because Brett not only has a lot of coffee to sort, he's also been made to bear an undue emotional weight among the podcast listening public. During these hard times, we're all hoping for Brett to work out, and I'm glad 
to report that it did. In the spiel today, why are these times that I just mentioned hard times? Well, it's because the president used his office to dig up dirt on his enemies. And we will look into the masterminds behind that scheme. You don't know what you're talking about, idiot. Yeah, that guy. But first, journalist Amanda Aronchik revisited an historical, I would say recent historical story that has fascinated me for years, the Unabomber. No one really knows why Ted Kuczynski mailed out 16 packages over the years, which maimed 23 and killed three. But his targets tell us something, and his manifesto is filled in some details. What Aronchik did was she looked into his bombings as a reaction to his being manipulated by technology through the use of behavioral psychology. And those themes are, of course, extremely relevant today. WNYC reporter Amanda Aronchik, the Unabomber, and the history of persuasion. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks, it's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity, using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. There are certain names in the history of American notoriety that if you are of their generation are totally resonant. And if you came around just a few years later, you're like, who? So, D.B. Cooper, that's one. Maybe a little older than me, but stole the money, took a parachute, maybe lived, maybe died. Just the stuff of legend and notoriety. There's a guy named George Metesky who I had to look up the name. I just remember him as being the Mad Bomber. And in the 1940s, he just didn't kill people, but injured 15 people via pipe bombs on the New York subway. Again, a name in notoriety that you remember, and then for some reason, they quickly slip from the consciousness. I never thought that would happen with the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski. If anything, he became shorthand for crazy man who lives in the woods and has lots of out there ideas. But recently, in a three-part series on the podcast, The Stakes, Amanda Aronchik went back, investigated Ted Kaczynski in the context of today's anxieties about all of our apps and all of our structures that affect our behavior. It's a fascinating look. She even, I would say, recast the story in a new light with new information. Amanda, thanks for coming on. I loved your series. Now, what did they brand the three-part series in the stakes? It is called The History of Persuasion. The History of Persuasion. That's right. But as told through the Unabomber, and that's the important thing, how long, when did the Unabomber first strike and when did they figure out that he had, he wasn't just randomly hitting people, he had, let us say, a point? 
I feel like you might have to fact check me, but yes. if I am not mistaken, the Unabomber s- leaves his first bomb in 1978. Mm-hmm. And it takes many, many years for them to find him. It takes 17 years. The FBI looks for him for 17 years. And in that period of time, he only kills three people, but injures 23. One of the victims is a guy named James McConnell. And he became, I think in solving the case, he became a very important victim to the FBI. But he came, became a very important victim in telling your story. Why, who was James McConnell? Who is James McConnell? Right. So this story started for me with James McConnell. I found him totally fascinating. He was a psychologist who was at the University of Michigan in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And he became notorious because of these studies that he did on worms. So he had an idea that memory could be transferred from one creature to another. So he was like, okay, I'm going to take these worms. I'm going to train them to do certain things. And then his way of trying to transfer the information that the worm that knew something to worms that didn't know anything was by grinding them up Uh and feeding them to the ignorant worms. Yeah. Yeah. Did it work? I mean... It looked like it worked. Wow. But it was very hard to replicate. Yes. And he was not, McConnell was a psychologist. He was not a chemist. Like there were all sorts of things he didn't know. Yes. And so he really struggled to like convince people that that was real. So it it launched, you know, it was part of like this whole like memory transfer period of time where that was like a really hot idea back yes. in the 60s. And since then, a few years ago, there's a professor at Tuft, uh, Professor Levin, if I'm not mistaken, I think that's how he pronounces it, Michael Levin. He managed to basically replicate it, mm. and and it and it seemed to work. So, what was McConnell doing beyond the worm experiments? Why why would someone like Ted Kaczynski, who we'll get to in a second, why would he have been drawn to McConnell and offended by what McConnell was studying? So, McConnell abandons this wor- the these kinds of worm studies, and he is always very much a believer in behaviorist ideas, right? So these are the ideas of B.F. Skinner. That for him, through his entire career, is something he holds dear, which is this idea that like, don't lie on the couch and talk about your feelings. What really matters is the behavior you do or don't do and just train people to behave well. So in the late 60s, he starts to be a, um, I think, a foot soldier is the term we use, but he starts, he's like a huge advocate for behavior modification. Mm-hmm. And so he believes in it. He starts, he opens a clinic in Michigan that like helps people with obesity and smoking. And he's a big deal. Like he goes on all of these TV shows. Right. He's like a popular science psychologist guy that they bring on to talk about all these different things. So anyway, he launches a class uh, in behavior modification and he sends his students out to do behavior mod in prisons and in VA hospitals and in all of the institutions that still existed in that period of time. So I think the reason that he ended up being a target of Ted Kaczynski was because I actually think it's probably because of a specific article that he wrote, which was that criminals can be brainwashed now was the name of it. Mm -hmm. And the idea was like a very extreme idea about behavior, which is there are bad people in society they don't mean to be bad. We could train them out of being bad yeah. by using the proper incentives, rewards, and punishments. And it's a pretty, like, extreme idea. It's sort of, there's, I think there's a piece of it that you're like, oh, well, that kind of makes sense. But I think it's Well, there start- is a piece of behaviorism that people use to stop smoking right. and right. to modify their behavior. And right. it's, um, 
influenced mainstream. You talked about it's not sitting on the couch and telling your feelings, but there are a lot of behaviorists who are therapists and certainly use those techniques. Of course, yeah. of course. And, you know, as I was doing all the research for this, I found it really hard to parse those two things. Yeah. Like, is this a, this technique inherently bad? And of course, the answer is no, it is not. It is, it you know, it's who is trying to control whom and for what right. end. So I think that's what Kaczynski took issue with. The main point is essentially given all the acknowledging all the extremism of how his uh, opinions took form, how right was the Unabomber or what kind of point did he have or what was he on to? What was he on to in terms of how much behavioralism has affected us? Right. It was very, I very much was looking at psychology. Yes. And it's profound, but also uh, there aren't clear villains because as you point out in the last episode, the professor who gets blamed for a lot of the gamification of our online life, you know, he would always teach ethics classes and that part of the lesson was ignored. Right. He was at, he's at Stanford. I think that it's the task I gave myself for the third episode was like to find everybody in Silicon Valley who somehow came from a psychology background. Yeah. And by the time I got there, it was fairly recent. Like I maybe started making calls in 2018. So it was still kind of in this moment where tech was bad because Cambridge Analytica had happened. But the general public, I think, still was a little like it, it wasn't quite as vilified as it is now. Mm-hmm. It was like the start of the tech lash. Yeah. So I think Silicon Valley was kind of reeling. And I think everyone I talked to kind of gave me the same line, which is like, we really don't want to blame this on any individuals. Yeah. So they weren't going to point to a psychologist or a book or a, you know, B.F. Skinner or B.J. Fogg or um, I guess what else could they have pointed to? The lab, this behavior science lab at Stanford, nobody really wanted to point at at one place, partly because I think everyone felt like they were all kind of implicated in the same thing and didn't really see it coming. Mm -hmm. I think there are definitely individuals who people would be like, oh, yeah, I think that was you designed an app with poor intent. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. There are individuals. But I think it was kind of like a little bit more like Silicon Valley didn't really see all the backlash coming. You know, it's interesting. Um, a couple times as almost a throwaway in this la- in the episode three, there was a reference to these are how slot machines run. Yeah. And in the in the 90s and aughts, I did a lot of reporting on slot machines and gambling. I had a podcast called on gambling. It was no kidding. First, it was the first podcast NPR ever did. Huh. And I went to the slot machine manufacturers. Yeah, yeah. And they were pretty excited that these new innovations in psychology kind of gave them the indications about what made people coming back. Right. And they were things like um, payoffs at irregular intervals. Right. And they were things like payoffs uh, of irregular levels. Right. And they were things like losing streaks that didn't last too long. Right. And so they didn't see they were slot machine manufacturers. They didn't see that they were changing society. They were just happy to be more on the cutting edge of things than, say, whoever the guy who invented craps and blackjack were. Right. But now we take that innovation. And this is why I do think that there is no one person or entity responsible. It all builds on itself. And no one knew that we'd have computers in our pockets and no one saw that there was a connection between what the slot machine guys were doing and what we could all be doing while waiting for the bus to come. But I mean, that's how innovation happens. That's how the persuaders get 
you know, an influence in society incrementally. It's iterative. My sense with what's happened in Silicon Valley, though, is a little more explicit. Right. I do think that there were books like Nira Yell's Hooked yeah. is one of them, where there was a place for people to go and look and be like, okay, how am I going to keep people on this stuff? In a, in a way that I don't know that the gambling industry had access to in the well, same Well, that's psychologists on staff. It just was also right. that it wasn't in everyone's pocket. It was the ubiquity right. of it. So, right. And also, and this is true, and I'm reporting on this soon too, you know, gambling, that sort of gambling back then was only in two cities and a couple of right. Native American reservations. Right, right. And now right. it's everywhere. Right. And I think people also look at gambling as like, you really chose that. Like, yeah, you, and the you word is the gambling. Right. 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 And you expect to lose. Right. And it's not like what you think Facebook is, which is an analog to Ma Bell and having a conversation on the phone. Only it's not. Right. No. It's Ma Bell plus persuasion. No, the um. Did you read the book Irresistible by Adam Alter? Maybe no. It's two of twenty seventeen. It's really good, and he he was a. Oh yes, I think I've heard he's at uh, NYU. interviews with yeah. Him, yeah, he's he's great, and he looked at World of Warcraft. I guess yeah. it, when he was doing his research, it, Silicon Valley was still was pretty locked down. People weren't really talking about what they were up to, and so he looked at World of Warcraft, which is considered like the most addictive mm-hmm. video game ever, and how they would iterate, like, and they would be online, and you'd be playing the game, and they they would sort of ask, you know. They'd give half the users a chalice to chase versus the other half, which would maybe get like a, a treasure chest or whatever. And it would turn out that everyone wants the chalice, not the treasure chest. And then they would change the game accordingly. Yeah. And so the, that is what's happening with all of these apps now, right? Is they're iterating, they're doing live A-B testing. They're adapting it and changing it while you use it to try to figure out how to keep you on it longer. So in the history of regulating addictive substances, mm. there is cigarettes, mm-hmm. but it seems easier to regulate cig- cigarettes than food or online content because you could just do total bans, right? You could just do total disincentives, never pick up a cigarette. And most anti-cigarette initiatives are not about smoking cessa- cessation. It's about never picking it up in the first place. Pretty m- Definitely impossible with food, mostly impossible with uh, online life. Yeah, I mean, I-, I thought of this all the time, or I was thinking about this all the time, which was like, there is nothing coursing through your veins with yeah. this stuff. Yeah. So I can't regulate. You can't well, but regulate. there's dopamine levels. Well, there's dopamine, but it's not like, it's not like a drug. Right. Like nicotine mm-hmm. or alcohol or heroin. It's not, those are easier to regulate in that there's a physical thing that you have control over. And it's like, who's to say whether you're altering someone's behavior? Like it becomes about intention. Like, are you well-intentioned when you're manipulating people? Are you poorly intentioned? And that's a very gray space. And so the, we need some regulation. I mean, I'm from Canada. I always think we need regulation. I, I don't have any, like, super innovative things beyond regulation. I, I Does don't Canada know why have, it's... I mean, you haven't been there in 20 years, but is Canada better on these issues than the United States? Do they not allow websites to use infinite scroll, for instance? I don't know what Canada's doing. I know there's a lot of this discussion in Europe. So Yes. And the fear here, obviously, is like, oh, no, it's going to stifle innovation. So... Europe seems a little bit further ahead. I, I haven't looked that closely at it. What else do you do personally as a result of the reporting that you've done in this series? Oh, my God. Sometimes I still spend six hours a night looking at Twitter. <laughs> it's probably You were probably doing most of the reporting on this series through things like Google and email. and Yeah. yeah. I mean, you kind of have to parse what is the problem. That, that has been interesting to think about. Like, is the problem my laptop? No, obviously, that's not a problem. That's... It's helpful. It's useful. I'm not addicted to my laptop. Mm -hmm. So it's what is the problem? How much time am I spending? I guess I still feel like I haven't. I'm aware of it. Being aware of your problem is a good first step. 
but I definitely have a bit of an addictive personality with this stuff. So have I like deleted Twitter and Facebook and Instagram? No. Amanda Ronchik is the reporter behind the It's a Little Bit of a Nesting Doll. The name of her three-part series is The History of Persuasion, and you find that within the WNYC Studios podcast called The Stakes, hosted by Kai Wright. Amanda, thank you for coming on this, The Gist from Slate. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you. taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on that's nice at caskers.com we make this experience easy caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code welcome 10 for ten dollars off your first purchase get ten dollars off your first purchase with code welcome 10 at caskers.com and now the spiel Hear ye, hear ye, all on hearsay. This seems to me like a political setup. It's all hearsay. You can't get a parking ticket conviction based on hearsay. The whistleblower didn't hear the phone call. Right. Was Lindsey Graham on Face the Nation? Senator Graham is a former lawyer, a military lawyer. Perhaps he can ask his Republican colleagues in the Senate who are actual prosecutors, guys like Alabama Senator Richard Shelby, former prosecutor, former U.S. Attorney Mike Lee, former Missouri Attorney General Josh Hawley, how hearsay works. That'd be a good question. Someone should corner Shelby or just politely walk up to him or Hawley and say, how many convictions did you get during your professional career that relied on hearsay? I would guess the answer would be a ton because credible hearsay is useful evidence as every serving senator ought to know. Wait, Lindsey Graham's a serving senator, right? Uh, Excuse me, I love Lindsey, but I I can't help but think the fact that he's an ex-senator. Now there's no audio for that interview in which Rudy Giuliani just told Maria Bartiromo that Lindsey Graham used to be a senator. There's no audio for the look on Maria Bartiromo's face, but I believe it can be best expressed this way. A wise woman once said President Trump was going to self-impeach. What did that mean, asked or at least wondered many aloud in the vicinity of Nancy Pelosi, who was that woman? Self-impeach. Trump does seem intent on doing it, but he has a little helper. I congratulated myself on this insight. Is it really self-impeaching if Rudy's there all along the way? But I found out that I was beat to the punch on the observation. You know, I, I don't want to be glib about this matter, but uh, last year... Uh, retired former Senator Judd Gregg wrote a piece in the Hill magazine saying the three ways are the five ways to impeach oneself. And the third way was to hire Rudy Giuliani. That, the speaker, by the way, quoting Judd Gregg, was Tom Bossert, Trump's first appointed and Senate-confirmed director of Homeland Security. He went on ABC This Week to make the point that there is no legitimate Biden investigation to be done in the Ukraine. CrowdStrike, Ukraine holding the servers. This is pure nonsense. Or to quote The Atlantic, A former White House official told me this entire thing, referring to the Ukraine scandal, was, quote, Rudy putting shit in Trump's head. And now he's putting it in our heads, thanks to TV news interviews. I mean, suppose it was alleged that Donald Trump Jr. 
got $8 million from a crooked oligarch in Ukraine, how long would it take for the Democrats to investigate us? And how long would it take for the Washington Post and the New York Times to have glaring headlines? Rudy made the same point, excellent point, on ABC. If these are so serious, if this were Donald Trump and Donald Trump Jr., I wouldn't be here having to do this. I am defending my client. Only Donald Trump Jr. was benefiting from contracts with Baku oligarchs. And they were contracts from the Iranian National Guard. The New Yorker reported it. All the Trump kids are benefiting from foreign nationals staying in their hotels and their properties with the express purpose of currying favor with the administration. And it's working. Jared Kushner, husband of Ivanka Trump, did benefit from selling his distressed property at 666 Fifth Avenue to Brookfield Asset Company, the largest investor in which is the Qatari Sovereign Wealth Fund. What are you talking about? And maybe it's not self-impeaching if you have Rudy on the case to make terrible points, to show his iPad with texts from since-resigned State Department official Kurt Volker. But maybe you could argue, okay, he is pretty close to the president. He's his now private fixer. He's the new Michael Cohen. Look what happened to that guy. But, you know, at least Trump's not using taxpayer-funded government officials to run down these crazy QAnon theories. (laughs) But he is. In the form of Stephen Miller, the presidential hatchet man who actually draws a salary paid for by you and me to engage in lies, obfuscation, whatever the hell this was on Fox News. What kind of secret cover-up are you also discussing on the airwaves of Fox News? Well, I don't know, Stephen. Are we talking about a cover-up run by a person of normal intelligence or one run by you and your cronies? Stephen Miller then segued into another peculiar talking point. The president is the whistleblower here. Aha. Okay. So on this, he and Rudy are a little off message because Rudy said to Rebecca Ballhouse of the Wall Street Journal. At one point yesterday, he texted me, how come I'm not a whistleblower? Rudy also said that he should be and will be considered the true hero of all of this. Unfortunately for Rudy, this slightly diverged from the man for whose wings he is the wind beneath. The president, Donald J. Trump, in an early morning 13 tweet tirade, laid out his defense. It began with the tweet, the greatest witch hunt in the history of our country, of which all the words except in the history of our country were capitalized. I will now read tweet number nine in its entirety. Strap in. You ready? Hashtag fake whistleblower. That's it. One word. Hashtag fake whistleblower. Huh? What is fake? Is the whistleblower fake blowing? You know, just miming the blow? No air is coming out? Maybe the whistle's fake. Maybe it's a crappy carnival whistle without the ball thing in it. Makes no noise. Or maybe it's a dog whistle that Trump can't hear. Trump hates dog whistles. He loves saying the quiet part out loud. He's not a clever, subtle guy. He just likes to say it. He also hates dogs, or at least doesn't understand how they work. I think maybe it's that his ears no longer pick up sound frequencies that occur between the level of rational thought and factual statement. What if Donald Trump is just deaf? A slate investigation. Maybe this is why he's always doing press conferences with the helicopter blades whirring nearby. It gives him cover to say, I can't hear you, and then he answers the question he wants. Maybe this is why we say Rudy has Donald Trump's ear, because he's the only guy who could rumble at that low bellowing frequency that only a New Yorker can emit when he has sufficient jowls and only another bloated egomaniac can hear so long as they were both born in the outer burrows. I think we're on to something here. 
This all bears investigation. And I hear Kurt Volker's free. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader produced the gist. He was never unibombed, but he was one sparkle bombed. Christina DeJosa, also producer of the gist, wasn't unibombed, but she was almost unicycled by an aggressive mime in the park that pain lingers. The gist, in the spirit of full disclosure, I want to read the entire putting shit in Trump's head quote. Here it is from The Atlantic. A former senior White House official told me this entire thing referring to the Ukraine scandal was Rudy putting shit in Trump's head. A senior House Republican aide bashed Giuliani, telling me he was a, quote, moron. Both individuals spoke on condition of anonymity in order to be candid. I would say it worked. Umpuru depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening.